0: It's good to see everyone here this morning, and hear everyone this morning singing to our great God, who is revealed as Lynn prayed in three persons as we sang about in that song. He is glorious to behold, and his deeds are amazing, and his work in our lives is amazing. Just to realize that we are now given the great privilege of going before the King because of his great love and mercy because he came near to us in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So let's give him praise for that prayer. And pray for me as as we go to Scripture this morning to hear what God has to say to us as a church. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you because you have called us out from the world by your great mercy and through your great love and the sacrifice of your Son. Holy Spirit, we thank you for sealing us and for revealing truth to us in Scripture, and for empowering us to do what you command. And Lord, we pray this this morning that you would, you would command whatever you will and grant us the power to do whatever you command. We pray. Because as we look in Peter, we see that we are commanded to do great things that are really impossible apart from your Spirit and your Word working in our lives. So, Father, I pray that you would fill us with your spirit this morning, fill us with your word so that we would be witnesses to the world of the power and the might of King Jesus and all that we do and say as a church and as individuals so that you would be praised and you would be glorified on the day that you visit sinners. Father, we thank you for this day in Jesus' name, amen. If you would, please open your Bibles with me to 1 Peter chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 9 through 12 as the set, set the context. And then we're going to focus this morning on verses 11 and 12. But here in First Peter, hear the word of the Lord as he speaks to us as Christians, as his people, his special own possession, those he purchased with the blood of Christ is what Peter has preceded this with. He says, but you, in verse 9, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession so that so that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness into His marvelous light, for you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation, in the day of inspection. In verses 9 through 10, we learn that Christians, God's people, when Christians are saved, we are given a new position. We are God's chosen people, according to verse 9. We are His royal priesthood, His holy nation. And then we also know that with that we have a new mission. As long as we have this great position, God says, I want to put you in my employment. This is your mission. Your mission in life is to proclaim the excellencies of Jesus Christ, first in the church and then in the world and to the world. And today, Peter's going to urge us to respond to these great and precious truths that we see in verses 9 and 10. That's what we see in verse 11 and 12. It's an urging, not really by Peter, it's actually by God. But he says here that he urges us to do two things, I think, that's in the text. Number one, we are to abstain from fleshly passions. And number two, we are to maintain our earthly mission. So it's pretty simple, abstain from. From fleshly passions, abstain from any actions that point to your past. And maintain your earthly mission, maintain actions that point to Christ. That's what we're called to do. That's the result of the work that he's done. Abstain from fleshly passions and maintain your earthly mission. And Peter says this because this is what I believe is true throughout Scripture, but Peter focuses in on it. He says this, our behavior, our behavior matters to God. Our, Our behavior as Christians, as his people, matters to God because it reveals Jesus' work to the world. Your holiness, your sanctified life, your progressively sanctified life matters to the Lord Jesus because it reveals His work to the world so that God would be glorified when they see God's mercy played out in your life, in your willful, thankful response of obedience and holiness. So let's begin and look at this in verse 11. He, He begins by saying, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. And what Peter does here is interesting. He begins by urging. And that word urging there could also be translated encouraging. He says, I'm urging or encouraging you to number one. Number one, abstain from fleshly passions based on your new position in God's sight. He's saying, abstain from these passions based on your new position in the sight of God. Look how verse 11 begins. Just one word. Peter urges us to abstain from these passions because he says, you are now beloved. You're beloved. You're beloved by our heavenly father because of his great mercy. That's what verse 10 said. It's through God's great mercy that now we're addressed as the beloved of God. Now, what I find interesting in verse 11, it's it's. It's the sovereign God of the universe, the judge, the king, the ruler of the universe. But he's not speaking to us as if we're outside of his kingdom. He's speaking to us as his children. He's gently speaking by using the word urge. I'm encouraging you. And this is a gentle urging or a gentle compelling to do something. Great for His name. I think what's interesting about this is it's gentle, but it's powerful because He bases it on His great mercy and love. He's calling us to holiness on the basis of what He has done for us through the sacrifice of His Son. And He calls us beloved. And what I I think is interesting in this is when I read this, just that one word, beloved. In that word, we see the kind condescension of a holy God. This is the God who who stoops down to address us as children and he speaks with gentle tones gentle words to his children those that he loves those that he has set apart to do his work and understand this the same god could have came down with lightning and thunder and said obey me this is not an this is not an imperative command here this is an indicative command i'm urging you out of your out of your love and thankfulness for what i have done for you through the work of My son, I urge you as my weary children, pursue righteousness, pursue holiness, reflect my work in your life. I'm urging you to do it for your good, he says. That's what he's going to get at. It's for your good, but it's ultimately for God's glory in the end. In verse 11, Peter urges us or encourages us, number two, to abstain from fleshly passions based on our temporal condition in the world he uses another phrase that speaks of our our temporal condition in the world he says we are to to abstain from these things because we are aliens we're strangers here in other words we're temporary residents verse one of chapter one he begins the whole letter this way he says peter an apostle of jesus christ to those who reside as aliens scattered or your translation may say dispersed and it's the word diaspora." And it means seed. In other words, it means you are planted by God, dispersed by God, seeded by God in this world. And, and this word strangers and aliens talks about more of what your life should be like. You are strange strangers who are aliens to this world. You're just passing through. You're pilgrims here. You're those who live in a foreign land or a foreign country for a brief time. And what's interesting when you go back to verse 11 he says, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from these fleshly lusts. Based on your temporary condition, you, you abstain from these things because you were planted here by God's sovereign plan. You are planted alongside unbelievers. This is the idea that you've come and you've pitched your tent beside their house. You came to live among them but not be of them. You have came to be with them so that you could serve as a witness to God's great mercy god has planted you here have you ever gotten discouraged by all the unbelief around you and all the unbelievers who come against you and then you have to stop and realize wait a minute those people are around me because god planted me here god put me here to be a witness of his great mercy to sinners because i am no better than the unbeliever beside me i am simply mercied by god and and god wants us to be a witness to these unbelievers he wants us to engage unbelievers but not compromise our behavior. We're we're to be alien to their sin. We're to be strangers to their sin. Temporarily here, knowing that these things cannot compel us because there's nothing satisfying in these sins for us. We're to remain distinct. And remember that we have a citizenship that is in heaven. And we are part of God's kingdom. And we are here to represent Him by our actions. Your ambassadors. You're aliens and strangers. Therefore, abstain from fleshly lusts because you are to be ambassadors for the king who transformed your soul. What he did to you inwardly will come out outwardly. And when you live amongst the Gentiles, as he'll phrase it, the unbelievers around you, they see the work and they're confused at some point because they think that man's no better than me, but I see life changing. I see satisfaction. I see peace. In the midst of trials that I can't comprehend, and that's God's plan, to declare His great work and to point people to His Son. And when I was thinking about being aliens and strangers, I was thinking about if you've ever met a uh, an exchange student, Have you ever met someone from a foreign country, and it's always amazing to me that that when you meet someone from a foreign country, we we are instantly attracted to them. I mean, there's something interesting about these foreigners. And there's something that's interesting. If someone comes in here from Vietnam or from China or from Australia, we want to know all about their background. We want to know all about their culture. We want to know what makes them different than us. And we honor their traditions. We find those interesting. We respect them. But if they live among Americans long enough, we Americanize them. And they lose their attractiveness. They lose their uniqueness and we find ourselves somewhat bored with them because they're just like us. This is the same thing will happen to a Christian if you adopt the world system into your life. If your behavior is not different, if it's not alien, there's nothing that sets you apart as unique and attractive to the unbelievers. You look just like them. That is not God's design for His children. You are to be distinct, yet among those people who are lost. So that they look at you and they see hope. They see transformation. They see that man who was once lost and dead in his sin and living in immorality and depravity. He is being changed. He is not perfect. He still struggles with sin. But he has a different outlook on life. He has a different purpose in living. He's not compelled to live for the things that the world tells him to live for any longer. He wants to be a light. He wants to be salt to the world. If Christians lose their saltiness and their light, they lose their effectiveness and their usefulness in the world. What I find very sad today is a lot of churches take this command or this indicative command in Peter, this urging by God to be aliens, They, they take this and turn it on its head and they say, we want to be more attractive to the world, so therefore we will adopt more of the world system into the church into my life if I can look more and more like the world the world will love me even more no the world will find you very unattractive very boring I think that's why there's an upsurge of reformed theology theology that holds forth the glory of a sovereign God because no one's doing it and people hear it and say that's not the God my preacher talks about no it's probably not because the God we're talking about can't be handled by men He calls dead men to salvation. He brings us to Himself. And He calls us to be attractive to the world by our distinction while we are in the world. We are to be holy, sacred, set apart, servants of a Most High and Holy God. Turn to Matthew 5 to see this. Jesus said this Himself in Matthew 5.13. Matthew 5.13. Down to verse 16. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has become tasteless, if you've become like the salt of the world, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light, and you are the light of the world," he says, "a city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house." Let your light glow, let your light shine before men, those Gentiles around you, those unbelievers, in such a way that they may see your good works, your good deeds, and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Magnify the greatness of the One who saved you. Magnify the One who has made you salty and made you a reflector of His glory, His light. If we we lose our usefulness as salt, we can't be preserving to anyone. We cannot preserve hope. God intends for the Christian to be a a life preserver. One that shows what life can be when Christ has redeemed it and taken it back to what God had intended it to be and given them hope that they can be changed. Such were some of you. You were liars and thieves, homosexuals. But God, in great mercy, transforms them sinners like that, into vessels of honor. God wants it to be a reflection of his light so we can guide people to the source of all light and life, which is Jesus Christ. And if we lose this, we won't reflect Christ to the world, and we're useless. Go back with me to 1 Peter 2, 11. Thirdly, Thirdly, here we see in 1 Peter 2, 11, that Peter urges us to abstain from these fleshly passions because... Of the corruption of our witness. We are to abstain from the fleshly passions of our flesh, our body, because they corrupt our witness. Verse 11 tells us we are to abstain from fleshly lusts. This word abstain simply means this. It means to hold oneself back. Now, in this particular verse, it's a present tense. So what it means is to hold oneself back constantly constantly. You're being called to continually push against the passions of your yet redeemed flesh. We're not saying that you're not going to have passions. You're not going to have lusts in your flesh. You are going to have these. That's a given. You see, you see, you have a righteous standing before God because of the imputed righteousness of Christ, but you still have an unredeemed flesh that's still infected with indwelling sin. And that sin is not satisfied with the hope of Tomorrow, the hope of heaven, it wants satisfaction now in this world. And so Peter's telling us we need to constantly, continually push that down. Now, what I find interesting about this is that's possible. We're being commanded to do something here by God, urged to do it by God. Therefore, God has made provision in Christ to do it because Christ has overcame the power of slavery to sin for us. He broke the power of slavery. As a Christian, you are not enslaved to indwelling sin. You're not enslaved to it. You have it. You have sin in your flesh. Paul talks about there's a battle that goes on. The, the law in him and the, the law of sin and the, and the spirit and the flesh are battling it out all the time. But he knows in Christ that's been overcome. It, it will be The victory will be in Christ and we can fight against it. Because we have God's spirit and God's word to equip us, to guard us. And understand, it's important to see this in verse 11, that we are called, urged, gently by a, a good and glorious God. He's urging his children. He's speaking to you as his child. He's not speaking you to you as an as unbeliever saying, you, you've got to do this or thunder and lightning comes. He's saying, I am, I'm commanding you as a good dad, commands his children, urging you gently, nudging you forward for your good. There, but there is something that we're responsible to do. We're responsible to heed that call and push against these things. When you become a Christian, it's not a matter of what some people think is, you know, you let go and let God. You know, I'm in, I'm in, so now I have no responsibilities. I'm, I'm saved, and so, I, you know, God will, God will take care of the rest. Now, God's urging us as his children to abstain from something here that takes active effort on your side. That's your responsibility as a Christian, and you've been equipped by the Spirit to do that. But you have to ask, when you, when you read that, he says abstain. Well, what are you abstaining from? Well, he tells us fleshly lusts. And those fleshly lusts we abstain from, we, we do so because they're going to corrupt your witness. They can't steal your salvation, okay? You're not going to lose your salvation. You sin as a Christian, you're not going to lose your salvation. But There is no license for sin here. He's saying, when you sin as a Christian, you're corrupting your witness to the world, and you were saved to glorify God and do good works, Ephesians two eight. You're saved to do two eight through ten to do good works. And when you read this, though, you have to ask yourself, what are the fleshly lusts? What do fleshly lusts look like? Now, when I say when I say fleshly lusts, sexual immorality flows to the top of the list. Right? That's right. We all think that, but unfortunately, that's that's probably a misconception, and it's an easy out for most of us because some of us don't have that problem. So we say, Peter's not addressing us here. He's just talking about the sexually immoral. No. He's talking about the passions that used to mark your life before you were a believer. Any passions, any desires, any urges. Look at Galatians. Paul gives us a definition, a picture of, not an exhaustive picture, but a picture in Galatians 5, of what fleshly lust might look like. And he will include, obviously, sexual immorality in that. That is there in the the flesh to battle with. But look what it says in Galatians 5, 519. Now the deeds, the deeds of the flesh, or we could say the fleshly lusts, the fleshly passions, are evident. Here they are. You ready? Here's not an exhaustive list, but this is a list. Immorality, and, and that word immorality can go toward the word of porneia, pornography, okay? Immorality, impurity, sensuality. Now, those, those are things that really have connotations of, of sexual perversion. But then he moves further. Idolatry. Now, that, that's setting up anything in your life as more important than God. That means if your job is more important than God, that's your idol. If your children are more important then God, that's your idol. If your career, if your financial situation is what you live for and wake up for and dwell on every day, that's your idol. So this is a very strong passion. And listen, before we were regenerated by God's Spirit, we had many idols. We were driven by many lusts, many passions. And what he's getting at here is these things are what marked you out as an unbeliever. Idolatry, sorcery, that's pharmakeia, that's drug use. Okay, anything from prescription drugs to marijuana and anything in between. Alcohol would be included. Enmities, strife, jealousy. Now he's he's moving from, from some outward things into some more inward areas. Strife and jealousy, outbursts of anger, inward areas of the heart that reflect in your relationship with people. Disputes, dissensions, and factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that you who, those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Those aren't Christians. Those people who live in this habitual kind of lifestyle are not believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. They have not been redeemed. And if you go back into Peter, when he's telling us abstain from fleshly lusts, he's simply saying this. Abstain from the lusts and the passions and the behaviors that used to identify you as an unbeliever. And that can be broad. What If you can think back before you were saved by God's mercy. What drove your life? What were the things in your life that marked you out when you hung out with the guys? When you're with a bunch of dudes and you're talking, what was your life like? Abstain from those things. You ladies, when you watch TV, you spent time on the Internet. Where did you spend your time? What did you spend your mind pondering? Abstain from those things. That's the identity you had as an unbeliever. Abstain from the things that drove your heart as an unbeliever. And we're being urged by God to do this. He's urging you out of love, ultimately for himself. You're his child, and he wants to look good through you. Okay? But he wants the best for you, too. He loves you. He redeemed you. He sent his son to die for you. That's love. That's beyond human love. But what Peter is addressing, if you go back there in verse 11, there's a context to Peter. I don't think Peter is primarily focusing on sexual lusts. There's a context. I think he's including What he mentioned early in the chapter, chapter one or chapter two, verse one, he's talking about relational sins. Abstain from the kind of relational attitudes you had toward other people when you come into the body of Christ. Those things should have died with you at the cross. What are they? It's these attitudes here. Verse one, put aside all malice and deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander. You you need to be marked out from those things. You have been brought away from those by God's grace. So you need to be putting those those relational sins away, putting them down, pushing them away from you. That's what Peter is getting at in chapter two of first Peter. He's talking about abstaining from fleshly passions. That. Damage the church. Do you understand that? He's he's talking to us as a chosen people, as a royal priesthood, as a holy nation of people and as as a priesthood of saints. He's telling us, abstain from the things that would hurt your fellowship in the church. Abstain from those passions that used to mark you out, which is self-driven. Now you're a part of the corporate body of Jesus Christ. Now put aside self and serve others. Put aside the fleshly lust, because if you don't, when you when you come into the church, if you carry the things that identified you as an unbeliever into the church, you're going to bring divisions and dissensions and selfishness. And it's going to damage the witness of the church. How many times have you guys heard of the testimony of a church that was split over slander? Dissensions, envy. It shames the name of Jesus. If you don't abstain from these things, it will corrupt our witness to the world. God is about having his name proclaimed and being brought to great great glory through the church. He wants his name glorified. He wants his bride to be holy. And listen, if we are abstaining from these things and if we're pushing hard against the flesh, pushing hard to keep it in check by God's Spirit and through God's Word, checking our hearts, examining ourselves... The contrary of hurting our witness will be true. It will exemplify the work of Jesus. When people hear the witness of our church, there there are divisions in the church because we're sinners. And they hear that those sinners, when they have divisions, go to one another in love and they call upon God's grace and the spirit of peace to direct their attitudes and transform their relationships. And they confess their sins to one another and there is healing in the body. When they hear that testimony... Jesus is praised in the world through the example of the church. We're not a perfect church. There are no perfect churches. We have a perfect Savior. And the Savior calls us to be joined together in love and to reconcile things that are wrong because He reconciled the greatest wrong that was between us and God. So we need to abstain and hold back. Let me give you just a practical way of doing that. Here's how you practically hold back because if you're reading this, you need to be thinking... Okay, Randy, how how do I hold back? How do I abstain? I mean, is there like a formula? I mean, is there like a checklist? No, there's not a checklist, but I can give you this. God's Word directs you how to abstain from sin. But you have to fill your heart and your mind with it constantly, daily. It's a daily battle, a continual battle. We're We're like leaky pots. It leaks out every day. We need to go back and be filled again with His Spirit, with His Word, by going there to find strength. We abstain from these things through the Spirit's power by submitting our souls to God's word daily. Let me give you two examples that will help you do that. Look at Romans thirteen. Here's one of the things you need to submit your heart and your passions to. Romans thirteen thirteen. Romans thirteen thirteen. If you if you could adopt this, if you could see this, do you do you let these words? Meditate, ponder, roll around in your mind daily. Do you focus on these? I mean, chapter 13 and 14 deal about how we love one another in the church. Look what it says. Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy. And here's here's how you here's how you abstain. Here's here's what it is. It's not the putting off only. It's the putting on part, but put on. The lord jesus christ fill your mind with the work of the lord jesus christ what he has done to atone for your sins bring you forgiveness and peace with god fill that up in your mind and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts if you spend much time contemplating the work of jesus christ the God-man who came from heaven's glory into this world to take your place, bear your burdens, take your sin and the penalty for it on the cross and be beaten and bludgeoned and crucified to grant you peace with God. And you recognize those sins that I committed were laid on Him. Therefore, when I put Him on in my heart, in my mind daily, I, I don't have room. I don't have room for strife and division and slander. God, I should have received that punishment on the cross, but Jesus took it in my place. So I want to put on the Lord Jesus Christ that will guard my actions, guard my feet from going the wrong direction. It will keep me from sin. Another example of how we abstain is found in Second Timothy two. Second Timothy two. Again, this requires the spirit of God and daily focusing on God's provision in his word. How many many of you know if you're daily feeding on the Word of God, there is a guard that the Holy Spirit will bring to your mind when sin enters in? We're all tempted. We all sin. In thought and deed and action every day. You've done it this morning. But it's the Word, the precious Word of God that comes to your heart through the Spirit and pricks you and says, sin. Sin. Look at the Savior. He died for you. Turn, repent. Don't be a hypocrite. Don't be a pretender acting as if you've got it all together. Recognize what the Savior did for sinners. Turn from the things that bound you as an unbeliever. Look at chapter 2, verse 22 says. We need to flee from youthful lust. First, you take up the Bible. You study what Jesus did. You put that on. And then you flee from youthful lust and pursue righteousness. When temptations come, when the flesh rises up and is drawn towards sin, what you do is you run. Remember Joseph, Potiphar's wife? Run, Joseph. Run. Pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. You've been washed in the blood of Christ. You've been purified by God's great mercy. Therefore, you have the power to run. You have the Spirit of God residing in you, equipping you to run from sin and pursue what is good. So do that to abstain from these lusts. Now, go back to 1 Peter 2, verse 11. Here, Peter urges us or encourages us to number four, abstain from fleshly passions because, because of the deception of our flesh. You need to abstain because of the deception in your heart. The heart of man is wicked, it's deceptive. You can't trust your heart. So you cannot trust your feelings. You, you're commanded, you're urged by God to do this because God knows if you trust your flesh, you're going to be deceived. You're going to be convinced that this sin's probably good for me and God doesn't mind. It's what you do when you sin. Do you sin? Because if you sin, that's what you do. When you sin, you're saying that God is a little less holy than He says He is. That's Deception. That's your flesh guiding your feelings, guiding your emotions, guiding your passions. So he's given us commands. He's given us urgings. Abstain from fleshly passions because of the deception of our flesh. Verse 11 says fleshly lusts do something to us, they, they wage war against our soul. Do you realize your, your body is fighting with your spirit? You're in a battle. And the enemy is within. You are the enemy. You are the enemy. And you are in a battle. Don't forget that. If you you give the enemy an inch, he will take a mile. So be constantly engaged in ongoing war against your sin. Just be aware of it. Know that it's there. Recognize and repent. Now, the, the word wage war is actually the word stratuo. Stratuo, it means to strategize. The English word, strategize. So Peter is saying, strat, the fleshly lusts strategize against your soul. Your flesh is finding, trying to find a, a loophole, trying to find a weak spot to penetrate, to attack your soul and to damage your witness. You have this battle going on inside of you, and we can turn it around. We are now called by God's grace and through his power to wage war against our flesh. But I think we need to be aware that it's there. Do you you realize this? When you sleep, your sin doesn't. Indwelling sin never rests. It never rests, so we must always be on guard. Why do you think that you have some of the most horrendous dreams you've ever had in your life? When you're... When you're thinking everything is great, life is wonderful, but then you start drifting off to sleep and those dreams penetrate your mind. Those dreams don't show up by accident, by the way. They generally have to do with what you've been feeding your flesh. And they're reflected when you sleep in your mind. So understand, sin never rests, not even when you're sleeping. What you have done will always be there. What you impress on your mind will always be there. So therefore wage war constantly against it. Understanding that fleshly desires are trying to deceive us into thinking something. You know what what your body's trying to deceive you into believing? Your body's trying to deceive you into believing that there is no promise of heaven. There is no promise of a future without sin. Therefore, get your passions, fill your satisfaction up now in your flesh. Your flesh is not spiritual. Your flesh does not have the hope of heaven guiding and directing it. Your soul does. So your body is saying, if you want good, if you want pleasure, you have to seek it now in this world. And that's deceptive. Because when you seek the pleasures of this world, what comes with it is a harvest of sadness and destruction. Even as Christians, when you commit sin, it brings repercussions. Not only does it affect you, but it affects the larger body of Christ as well because you're connected with us as living stones. And our flesh is trying to tell us, seek pleasure now. Look for instant gratification. But here's what I want you to know. If if we understand the Scriptures rightly, we know that God has greater pleasures waiting for the child of God. And if I seek the pleasures that God hates now, I'm never going to find satisfaction in those. That's why you ever notice when you when you commit one sin, you're driven to go ahead and commit another sin and then compile it with another sin and compile it with another sin. And before you know it, you've excused all those sins and there's a wake of destruction behind you. You've left because you have you have said, I want pleasure and I want it through my flesh, but my flesh is never satisfied. That's when the sin level has to raise each time. That's why pornography is such a dangerous dangerous sin it raises the level each time a person partakes of it and you continually go further and further into the darkness you'll never find pleasure in what god hates and to try to excuse sin and say well i'm a christian i'm born again i'm okay god's forgiven me it's okay god'll god'll give me grace and he'll he'll cover my sins he's already taken care of it that's that's to spit in the face of christ he calls you to be holy he calls you to be a reflector of His glory. His child, shaped for His own purposes to reflect His beauty and grace. If we seek the pleasures God hates, we're going to always be dissatisfied. But, if we seek what God loves, if we seek the pleasures that God loves, we'll find joy beyond human comprehension. Listen, I'm all about pleasure. I, I want to I want pleasure. I want satisfaction. I want my life to be meaningful. You do too. But it will never be meaningful or satisfied if I'm seeking the pleasures of the flesh. But when I seek the things that God loves, I will find satisfaction. that's beyond human comprehension because it goes beyond this mortal coil. It goes beyond this world. Our satisfaction as aliens and strangers, we know we're just temporary here. So it transcends the earthly. I can, I can persevere in this world as a witness for the Lord Jesus Christ because my home is heaven. I have a citizenship there. I'm a child of the king. I'm going there one day. And I am full of comprehension that God has given me a divine promise through his word that joy is beyond measure in heaven. Look at Psalm 16. Psalm 16. Verse 11. Actually, verse 7. I will bless the Lord who has counseled me. Indeed, my mind instructs me in the night. I have set the Lord continually before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. That is what your standing is before God when you know that you have set his word. In your heart and you know that you have been made right with God through His mercy. You'll not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my, jo- my glory rejoices. My flesh also will dwell securely. I'll make it through this life. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, the grave. Nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You will make known to me the path of life. In your presence, notice this. In God's presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand, there are pleasures forever. Listen, I'm seeking pleasure. I'm seeking the pleasure that the Lord Jesus Christ, who's spoken of in this song, accomplished and promised for me. My pleasure is found in knowing that the one who would never undergo decay, the one who went to the grave but wasn't abandoned, that one has interceded for me, has worked in my place on this earth and has promised me a home in heaven. That's my pleasure, that's my satisfaction when I wage war against the flesh. I know that He has promised me something that's beyond this world. That's my hope. Now go back with me to 1 Peter 2, 11. What what He's doing here is He's ending this verse. He's, He's urging us to continue, continue waging war against sin and do it with confidence because we're not alone in this battle. The Lord Jesus, according to Psalm 16, He waged the war for us and he won the victory over sin. He set us free. No Christian can give me an excuse to say I can't help it when I sin. Yes, you can. You've been given the power of God through his word and through his spirit because Christ accomplished perfect atonement for you. He can give you the strength. And when you do fail and you do sin, he gives you forgiveness and he gives you grace to persevere and to pursue righteousness He defeated the power of sin for us. And what I find amazing about that is when we go into verse 12 here. What Christ did for us allows us in the mystery of grace. To do something through our progressively sanctified life. Because Jesus accomplished the work for me. I can now walk in sanctification progressively. No one is sanctified completely in this life. We will be glorified in heaven. But I can persevere in sanctification. I can grow in sanctification knowing that God has intended that to be the case because God intends to use me to bring glory to His name. That's why you were saved. Look at verse 12. This is our, actually our second main point. I've given you four points within one point, but our second main point, point number two is this. Peter urges us to maintain our earthly mission in verse 12. He says, I'm urging you, keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. Now in verse 12, what he's doing is Peter's encouraging us to maintain our earthly mission. Number one, because we are under constant observation. That's what he's going to say. We maintain this earthly mission because we're under constant observation. That's what verse 12 says. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles. What Peter says is our conduct is to be excellent. The word excellent here means honorable, something beautiful, something adorning, something to behold and bring glory to God. Your behavior is to be honorable as Christians. Excellent behavior. And what this word in the Greek breaks down to mean is this. Your, your behavior is to have an outer goodness that strikes the eye of an unbeliever. It catches their attention. It's like a diamond in the sun. That's what your excellent behavior is ordained in God's providence to do. Look, good works aren't just for yourself. You're called to do good works to magnify the work of Jesus so that the world sees that sparkling diamond and says, that thing was a lump of coal last week. What's going on? What's transpired in that person's life? Why are they satisfied with things that I would never be satisfied with? They're not even trying to keep up with the world anymore. They seem to be actually letting go of the world and satisfied with less. I want to know why they sparkle like that. That's what Peter's telling us. He wants our behavior to be excellent. Our lives should compel the lost to be amazed by what they see God doing in us. That's exactly what he says in chapter 3 of 1 Peter, verse 15. Look what it says here in verse 15. But sanctify, the word sanctify means set apart. Okay, So in other words, you're gonna, it's like taking Jesus and you're setting him apart from all other things. He's your greatest good, greatest pleasure. You're setting him apart as precious, as the Lord. It means as the master of your heart. In other words, you're you're recognizing his lordship and you're submitting to it. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, And he says, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope. Be ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. Be ready to give an account for the hope that's in you. What what he's saying is when when people see that there's a hope in you, they're going to ask you about it. When, When people observe our actions, they see what we hope in. Do you recognize that? When when people look at your behavior, your lifestyle, they see a picture of your God. They see a picture of your hope. The thing that makes you tick is what people see, and whatever makes you tick is the witness to the world. Okay, now if it's money, if it's selfishness, if it's pride, that's what you hope in. That's why we need to abstain from these things and put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And Peter understands that whatever consumes our heart, our minds, will control our behavior. Whatever consumes your heart, whatever your deepest desire is, that's going to change the way you live in the world. Your hope, your hope that you have in your heart controls the way you use the time and the money that God's given you. Your money's not yours and your time's not yours. So when you're late and you've given your word, you're going to be on time. You've abused God's grace. We think of things like time as if it doesn't matter. No, that's God's time. As a Christian, when you make a commitment to be on time, to do anything less than that brings shame on the name of Christ. To use your money for anything that would bring dishonor to Jesus, shames the name of Christ. And people begin to think, okay, they must love money more than they love this. So maybe that's their hope. If our hope is to see Jesus glorified, on the earth, it's going to control everything we do and everything we are. You recognize if, if you want to glorify God, as, as the scriptures tell us, in all things, whether you eat or drink. If, if you set that as your hope to see Jesus glorified, my hope is that Jesus will be glorified in my life. That's going to affect the things that I wear. If, if I want Jesus to be glorified in my life, it's going to affect the things that I watch on TV or on the Internet. If I want Jesus to be glorified and that's my hope, it's going to change probably some of the things that I the reasons I buy certain things. I'm no longer trying to to follow the standard of the world. I'm no longer trying to, to follow the agenda of the world. This isn't my home. I'm an alien here. Why do I care what the latest fashion is? That's not my hope. But if that's all you're about, if that's all your life is driven by. That becomes evident to the world. That's what you hope in. You want to look good. You want to sound good. You want to be cool. What's your hope? Is it that Jesus will be praised through your life? Through what you buy? Through what you wear? Yes. That's our desire. When the world observes what we do with our money, when the world observes what we do with our life, they know what our hope is in our heart. And they'll want to know what that is. The world wants to know something When you set other things away from you, abstain from certain things, and you put on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you set your life apart to glorify His name, and you're satisfied, and you're content, and you're happy, the world wants to know where that comes from. Now that's the greatest opportunity you have as a Christian. Because they are going to ask you about the reason for the hope that lies within you. You understand the context of chapter 3 in Peter is... Christians being persecuted, Christians being in, in suffering. And Peter is saying in that chapter, in chapter three, he's saying, when you go through suffering without without giving up, the world wants to know about it. The world wants to see that hope and they're going to ask you about it. And then all of a sudden, your behavior becomes God's instrument of grace. That's why your good works and your good deeds matter in God's eyes. Your behavior allows you to testify to the hope that's found in Christ. He is our satisfaction. He is what we live for. Jesus is God. Jesus is my Lord. I live for Jesus. That's my life. That's my satisfaction. That's my contentment in life. Do you live for Jesus or for yourself? That's your question this morning. Your behavior will betray it. Your behavior will testify to it. When, when they see your behavior is, is you exist for the glory of God, then they're going to say, I want to know about this. And that's your opportunity to talk about God's mercy that came to you in the perfect life of Jesus Christ. He lived that righteous life we could never live, and He died the death we deserve. He took the penalty for those who believe in Him on the cross to grant us forgiveness and repentance so that we would turn from our sin. And live differently than the world around us. Because we know that this world's not our home. With Jesus' work came the promise. We have a home in heaven. He has went there to prepare a place for us. That's our commitment. That's our desire is to make the world know his greatness. And, And we know as aliens and strangers, that's why we exist. Don't you find yourself in situations where you look around and everybody's saying, you've got to have this and you've got to have that. And this makes life great. This makes life wonderful. And you're going, don't need it. My life can't be any better because I have Christ and He has me. And I have the promise that one day I'm going to be with Him. But let me tell you about that. That's your opportunity to share the good news when they see that there's hope in you that looks different than the world. If the church looks like the world, they're never going to ask you about the hope that you have in you. Because they're already satisfied with stuff. That's why the word faith movement is heresy. They're always telling people, you, you, you want to know God. If you know God, you'll be blessed. You'll receive blessings and money and riches and happiness. And well, the Donald Trumps of the world have all that. They don't need Jesus for that. You need Jesus for what you can't have. Righteousness, peace with God, that comes through Jesus alone. His work, His death, His resurrection, His promise of soon coming and reigning from heaven and earth. That's our promise. We're to be reflectors of that. We are ambassadors to reflect that the kingdom has come in the person and work of Christ and dwells in us. This isn't our home. We need to keep our behavior excellent because this is our earthly mission field. And he says that we're placed here, verse 12, among the Gentiles. Now that's just a a way that Peter addresses the unbelievers, the ethos, or the ethnic, the nations, the heathen. He's saying, you're to keep your behavior excellent among the lost souls that you were placed or planted alongside by God's divine purpose. If you have an unbeliever in your family, which I'm sure you do, if you have an unbeliever friend, if you have an unbeliever at work, guess what? God placed you in their life by a divine purpose. To declare His greatness in your distinct life as an alien and stranger. Verse 12 goes on to say that God placed us here so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may because of your good deeds as they observe, observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. We are here to be observed. Do you know that? You're here to be observed. You are placed, after you're saved, you're not just swept home to heaven, you're planted in this earth by God's sovereign purposes, His predetermined plan so that you would be critiqued by the lost. That's why you're here. You're to be a standing stone that reflects the glory of God standing in the midst of this corrupt world saying this is the only way to heaven. It's through the Lord Jesus Christ. And here's what He's done. And they're going to critique you. And when they critique you, what, they're, what you pray that they're going to see is they're going to see the work of Christ in you. Your hope. Your changed life, it's all based on the work that Christ accomplished for you. And we want them to be amazed by that. Again, if we're not living any differently than the world, they have no reason to ask you about the hope that you have. But when your life is countercultural, because it's Christ-centered, it's all about glorifying the Lord Jesus, people are going to come to you and say, tell me about this Jesus. And then you give, to, you give them the gift of the gospel. But when that happens, just be prepared. When you take a stand to live differently than the world, countercultural, abstaining from fleshly lusts, living like an alien who hopes in heaven, not in this world, when you do all those things, just understand this, slander will come. Persecution will come. When you say that your life is to be separated, when you say, I'm not going there, I'm not watching this, I'm not partaking of that, I'm not wearing this, oh, you're one of those people. Okay, fundamentalist, yeah. Religious, yeah. Legalist, yeah. No, I am made righteous in the blood of Christ, and I have a new heart and a new home, and I want to honor my God who saved me. Therefore, out of joyful thanksgiving, I abstain from these things, lest I bring a shameful mark on my king. But when that happens, they will slander you. To some people, Christians will be an aroma of life unto life. Some people, when you witness for Christ in your life and your behavior, you'll be an aroma of death unto death. Because you're going to expose their sin. When the Lord Jesus came face to face with the Pharisees, they hated him because up until that point, they looked righteous in the eyes of the people. But when they stood beside the Lord Jesus, they looked like a black piece of coal up against a perfectly white garment. He exposed their unrighteousness. And when he did that, they hated him and they sought his death. Just be prepared. That will happen. But here's the good news. If you persevere, you proclaim the word and you live in line with the word you proclaim. If your message and your behavior line up, that slander, the accusations and the hatred, it won't stick to you. You may be accused of many things, even as a Christian. If you take a stand against something, they may accuse you of things wrongfully. They did that to our Lord and they crucified him because of it. And they may do that to you as well. But understand, if you hold fast to your commitment to Christ, hold fast to what He has done for you and let that drive you to gracious obedience. Thankful obedience, not legalism. Legalism is evil. But a heart that's been transformed by God's mercy through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ will be driven to a gracious desire to live differently than this world. This isn't our home. And when that happens, the people will eventually see over time, maybe those accusations weren't true. The early church was was attacked like this after Peter's day. The early church was attacked. They were, they were slandered horribly. Do you realize this? The early church was was called basically anarchists. They were anti-government because they wouldn't bow to Caesar. They were also called idolaters. Did you know that? They were called atheists. Because they said they wouldn't bow to Caesar as God. There's only one Lord. It's Jesus Christ. They were also accused of being immoral when they had love feasts. Accused of being cannibals because they ate the body and blood of Christ. But over time, the truth persevered. They became salt and light to the world that they were placed in. It came a time when they were seen as beneficial To the society in which they lived. Because they were counter distinctive. They were distinct from the world. They they were not like the world. And they saw them as a benefit to the world. Because they made better workers. When they took a job. They stuck with it. They were honest to a fault. When they made commitments in marriage. they, They stayed together. Till death did they part. They were salt in the world. Preservers of righteousness. So. Think about that. When they did that, it actually shut the mouths of those foolish men who slandered them. And think about this. Does your behavior and your good, dudes, do, do good deeds, do they, do they reflect the message that you preach, that you proclaim, that you live? Do your behavior, does your behavior reflect what you proclaim? Because if it doesn't, you're going to run into problems. You need to have your message and your life in line. Focused on Christ. And if it's not, you may be slandered wrongly. You may be slandered for the things that you do, or that you did rather, when you were an unbeliever. Now, think about that. Are you, are you being slandered as a Christian? Or are you being slandered because of the life that you're living reflects what you used to be like before you were saved? I mean, at your workplace, are you slandered and not liked because of the kind of things that, the desires that flow out of your mouth and your attitude that reflects what you were before Jesus saved you? Or are you being slandered because of your stand for righteousness and for holiness and to bring praise to our King? Because there's a big difference between those two. You're blessed if you're persecuted for Jesus' sake. But if you're not, if it's because of your old man rising up, it brings reproach on his name. We need to be thinking about how we can adorn our lives with good deeds because it needs to back up what we say with our message that we proclaim. Look at Luke. Look at Luke six. Luke six twenty seven. Think about what good deeds you should be doing as Christians when you're slandered. What should we do when we are accused? What should we do when we are persecuted? How should we react? Well, the Lord Jesus tells us here in verse 27 of chapter 6. But I say to you, you who hear, love your enemies and do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you and pray for those who mistreat you. Whoever hits you on the cheek, offer him the other also. Whoever takes away your coat, do not withhold your shirt from him either. Give to everyone who asks of you. And whoever takes away what is yours, do not demand it. Treat others the same way you want them to treat you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those th- love those who love them. If you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. If you lend to those who from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners in order to receive back the same amount. But love your enemies. Do good and lend expecting nothing in return and your reward will be great and your and you will be sons of the Most High, for He Himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. Amen. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. That's the kind of good deeds we need to we need to be pursuing, because of what God has done for us in that last passage, He has mercied us. He is kind to ungrateful men like us, so we can we can be merciful to those who are unlovely, because Jesus was merciful to the to us who are unlovely even now as Christians. We can do good to unbelievers. We can do good deeds and treat them correctly because Christ was despised and forsaken by us. You realize that you can now do good to others because you were with the crowd at the cross crying, Crucify him! But now you're not in that crowd and you're saying, Glorify him! Because he has done great things for you, a sinner an ungrateful despiser of the Lord Jesus Christ. He has loved you with an everlasting love. He has given you a promise of heaven. You can love those who despitefully use you. You can do that if you remember the great mercy that He has given to you in Christ. I was reading Martin Luther this week. And he had a phrase that I read that I found compelling. And he talked about how that we as Christians... We as Christians carry the nails of Jesus in our pocket all day long reminding us of God's great mercy. We carried the, the nails. We crucified the Lord of glory. It was our sins that nailed him there. How could we not forgive others? We have been recipients of great mercy. That's what really what transforms our behavior. So when people slander you and mistreat you, remember what God has done for you when you were slandering and mistreating his son. He has shown you great mercy. That, that's what's going to transform your behavior and motivate you to do good deeds. We don't do good deeds to, to please God, to earn His favor. We do good deeds because Jesus did that for us. Out of mercy, we've been favored by God. And now we respond with good deeds out of thankful hearts. Now lastly, back in Peter, First Peter 2.12, Peter further urges us maintain our earthly mission by number two uh, because God will use it on the day of visitation. We need to maintain our view of our mission, maintain our abstaining from fleshly lusts and living as aliens separated from the world, but yet here to reflect God's glory because God will use that on the day of visitation. This is the amazing part of God's grace to give us progressive sanctification. I think part of the, the reason it's progressive is because It shows the world that we haven't arrived. I mean, we're not not complete. We still sin. We still need our Savior. We still need grace every day. Graces are new for each of us. And the world sees that. And we're not running around as hypocrites saying, well, I was saved and sanctified. I've never sinned since. No, that would be a lie. What we are is we are sinners. We are repenters daily and continually. And the world sees that and says, What drives that? And and God uses that in his divine, sovereign power. He uses the sanctified life to bring people to salvation. Your behavior matters because God left you here to bring his elect to salvation by watching your behavior. Your witness matters. Verse 11 says you're left here, you're placed here to to maintain this earthly mission because of God will use it because they may, because of your good deeds, they may, because of your good deeds, your good works, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. Now, if you're taking notes, I've got five minutes. If you're taking notes. You might write out beside the word visitation inspection. Inspection. Could be phrased this way. As they observe them, glorify God in the day of of inspection. And, And what Peter's saying is, God's going to use your behavior in your earthly mission on the day of visitation, on the day of inspection. He's going to use your stand, your witness, your behavior, your good deeds on the day that He visits sinners. Visitation is the word episkopos. Some of you may know what that word means because we use it for the word shepherd. It means overseer or it means to look upon. And I believe in First Peter, and I've studied this extensively this week, and I read many commentaries, and I, I found that, that I was actually surprised by, by the differences, but at the same time, the majority would stand where I'm at today. In First Peter, the context, I believe that the day that's being spoken of here, the day of visitation, is the day that God looks upon sinners in mercy, because that's the context of chapter 2. It's not judgment. I don't believe it's judgment here. It's mercy. The day of visitation in the Greek. The reason that is, is in the Greek text before the word visitation, there is no definite article in front of that word visitation. It does not say capital T-H-E does not say the day of visitation as if is the day of the Lord or the day of judgment. What it could actually be translated is, is this on a day of visitation. Because of your good deeds, they will observe them and glorify God on a day of visitation. And visitation can, can mean either a time when God visits judgment on the world or blesses the world. It can mean either one. Now, I'm going to give you an example of, I think, one that, that actually kind of conveys the idea of both of those meanings. Judgment for those who do not believe, but also blessings for those who do believe. Go to Luke chapter 19. This would be the main point here we're going to look at. Luke 19. Verse 44, or 41 rather. And when he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and wept over it. This is the, the Lord Jesus. As he approached Jerusalem, he began to weep. Our Savior is weeping over the souls in Jerusalem. Saying, verse 42, If you had known in this day, there you go, this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes. For the days will come, Upon you, when your enemies will throw a barricade up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side, and they will level you to the ground and your children within you, and they will not leave you in one you, you one stone upon another, because you did not recognize notice this phrase the time of your visitation you didn't recognize the time of your visitation, and I think the, the, the meaning here is both it can be applied the same as in first peter two twelve Jesus came. At that time, on that day, to be a blessing to Israel. But most of Israel rejected their Messiah. Yet we also know this. God's elect came when he visited them with grace. His disciples. That was the day of visitation when he came. His elect came out of mercy. And I believe the word there in 1 Peter 2 refers to the salvation of sinners. I believe it refers to the salvation of sinners that come as a result of of a Christian's witness. On the it basically, could be this way: on the day that you they were they are converted, it's what Peter's saying is that on the day of that visitation, on the day they are converted or visited by God, on that day they will give glory to God. He gets the credit, but he gets the credit because they heard you proclaim the gospel of Christ and they observed your good deeds. They heard the message in your life. They saw the message change your life. And then they came to faith in Christ. Now, the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man are both wrapped up in that. And I'm I'm not going to untwine it. That's just the way it is. But it's because God planted you here that they saw your witness and heard your message. So he's behind it all. He's working in it. And Peter wants us to understand something about this, I think. He wants us to understand that our manner and our message are being used by God to bring His children to faith. And and that's what I I think we need to understand. That He he sovereignly saves, yet He ordains the use of men and our lives. Those two truths coincide perfectly, not in my mind, but in the mind of God. How how your witness actually leads to the salvation of sinners is, is an amazing gift by God who can take a progressively being sanctified sinner and use it To point people to the Savior so that God ultimately is glorified on the day He visits them with salvation. That's what He's talking about. That's the mystery of why you exist as Christians. That's why you're living stone. That's why you're chosen people. You're a holy nation, a royal priesthood that will reflect the glory of God in the world and He will seek out His lost children and bring them and place them in your life so that you'll reflect His glory. So your your life and your deeds... And your behavior matters to God and His glory. Because He uses that to bring His children to salvation. He uses the good deeds of Christians in our separated lives as a means of bringing lost sinners to the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think that's what's supposed to to motivate us here in this text in Peter. It motivates us if we know that He's using your life to bring glory to His name and the salvation to sinners in the world around you that will help you abstain from fleshly lust and maintain your witness for Christ. Now, I want to give you one last. It's like 1130. I'm going to give you one last text to look at because I think it's essential. To back up my claim that I think that this is the day of visitation, Is the day that God visits mercy on sinners so that when, when they, they are saved, they glorify Him. I have an example of that, of a, of a man who witnessed a man who witnessed with his words and witnessed with his life. And I want to give you that example because I want you to see something. That man's life and words changed your life. That man's witness, that man's witness and his words he proclaimed because they lined up and he, he lived separate from the world. He distinguished himself from the culture around him and he proclaimed the truth in spite of persecution because of that man. You're a Christian today. Go to Acts chapter 6. The man's name is Stephen. Stephen was among the first of the disciples that were basically called to be a deacon of the early church. In Acts 6, verse 5, Stephen was called as a deacon and he was also a powerful preacher. And in verse 5 we see Basically what Stephen went about to do right after he was called to serve as a deacon. The statement, the statement found approval. They basically chose Stephen out with the whole congregation. They chose Stephen, a man who was full of faith and the Holy Spirit. In other words, he had knowledge and he had power. And Philip, Nice, Nicenor, Timon, Pyramidas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. And these they brought before the apostles. And after praying, they laid their hands on them. And the word of God kept spreading. And the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. And Stephen, now this is great, full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people. But some men, from what was called the synagogue of the freedmen, including syrians and alexandrians or Syrians and alexandrians and some of them sicilia sicilia and uh, asia rose up and argued with stephen but they were unable to cope with the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking then they secretly induced men to say we have we have we've have heard him speak blasphemous words "...against Moses and against God, and they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came up to him and dragged him away and brought him before the council. They put forward false witnesses. They accused him, so they slandered him, who said, This man incessantly speaks against the holy, this holy place and the law. We have heard that this, heard him say that this Nazarene, Jesus, will destroy this place and alter the customs which Moses handed down to us. And fixing their gaze on him... All who were sitting in the council saw his face like the face of an angel. And the high priest said, Are these things so? And Stephen said, Hear me, brethren and fathers. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. And what Stephen does at this point here is Stephen begins to proclaim the gospel from Abraham to Jesus. And what they saw in Stephen was there was a man full of faith, but he was full of power. He had a powerful witness. He wouldn't compromise. He stood up in front of the council and he proclaimed a message that he knows is going to be offensive to them. And he lived a life that was distinct from them. And if you go over to chapter 7, verse 51, you see what the result was. You men who are stiff-necked. I mean, he, he gets to the end. He's preaching hard. You men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You are doing just as your fathers did. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You have received the law as ordained by angels and yet did not keep it. Notice what they did when they heard him preach. They saw his righteous life. He wouldn't back down. He wouldn't back away. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the quick, and they began gnashing their teeth at him. And being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And they cried out with a loud voice and covered their ears and rushed at him with one impulse. When they had driven him out of the city, they began stoning him. And the witnesses laid aside their robes the feet of a young man named Saul. One man's witness, one man's proclamation was what God used, I believe, because you read later in the Apostle Paul's testimony, to convert the Apostle Paul to salvation. Because of the Apostle Paul, we now have the epistles in the New Testament. We have the revelation that God has came to us and delivered to the church the message we need to hear today. But notice Stephen, because of his righteous life and his powerful words and how they lined up together, the Apostle Paul, who was called Saul at that time, was impacted deeply by his witness. And on the day of visitation, when God called Paul on the road to Damascus to submit to the Lord Jesus Christ, I believe it was partly because of Stephen's witness. Because Stephen's witness and his words lined up. And that's, that's, that's our call today as a church. I believe Peter's calling us to abstain from these things, live as aliens, keep our behavior excellent. Because God will use us on the day of visitation to grant mercy to sinners if we are committed to the message we proclaim by living it out daily as Christians. I want you to be distinct from the world. I want you to be the salt and the light that leads people to the glory and the, the goodness of our, our Lord Jesus Christ. That's my desire for you as a church. That's what Peter desires as well. Actually, it's what God urges us to do. God has pleaded with you as children this morning through Peter. He has urged you to abstain from anything that would bring shame on his name and to maintain a witness that would point people to Jesus. That's what we're called to do. Let's pray. Father, we thank you today because you have given us direction in Peter. We, we know that you have spoke to us directly through Peter and many things in between there. But, God, we know that you have directed our minds and our hearts to to listen as you urge us to be different from this world and driven by thankfulness for what Christ did in coming into the world. And let that, Lord, I pray. Shine in our lives so that we would be witnesses on the day of visitation, that people would say, I saw the work of Jesus and these people at Sovereign Grace. And Jesus, I thank you for the work you did for them and placed them beside me for your glory. I give you praise. I believe God wants to be praised. I believe you want to be honored. So we thank you, God, because you are the one who places us alongside the the world around us as aliens. We've been sent into this mission field to stand up for Jesus. We pray that we would have the strength daily by going to your word, being filled with your spirit and guided into all truth so that you would be praised in the world. In Jesus' name, amen.